Hi everyone and welcome to Spark Leadership. I'm Wendy Tepiso Maledu, a senior behavioral scientist at Coach Hub and the host of this show. I'm very excited to speak with my guest, Thomas Kolditz, because today we'll discuss something we all can benefit from, and that is learning how to effectively lead others in crisis situations. Thomas Kolditz is the founder of five leader development startups, including most recently the Anne and John Dewar Institute for New Leaders at Rice University in Houston, Texas. A retired Brigadier General who led the leadership department at West Point for 12 years, he has held leadership roles on four continents for more than 40 years. Thomas is a highly accomplished executive coach and has been ranked amongst the top 25 coaches globally for the past five years. He is the author of In Extremist Leadership, Leading as if Your Life Depended on It, and most recently, Leadership Reckoning. We'll hear Thomas' insights on what characteristics are essential when leading in a crisis, as well as discuss why leader development needs to start at university level. I am so delighted and very honored to have you on the show. A warm, warm welcome uh, to the show, General Tom. Well, thank you very much, Wendy. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So... One of the standing features of the show is that our guests uh, share one interesting fun fact about themselves at the beginning, and we wrap up the show with future predictions. Um, Can you please share with our listeners one interesting fun fact um, about yourself? Well, um, when I was uh, chairman of the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership at West Point, I also coached and was a senior instructor on the West Point parachute team because parachuting was one of my hobbies. And um, I was able to make more than a thousand parachute jumps with cadets. But the the piece that was, I think, a little unusual is that we primarily had helicopters to practice with because West Point is nestled into a very mountainous and, and rocky area. And so it, when I left West Point, I had 647 helicopter parachute jumps which was the most of anyone in the Army at the time. There's been one other person I know now who has gotten more, but uh, at the time it was, it was a record of sorts. Wow, wow. <laughs> I know this is not part of the conversation, but it would be lovely to know. I mean, when you did like probably your last jump, how did that feel like? Well, it felt great, and uh, it's always been a terrific sport for me, but, you know, it makes an important leadership point that if I was to be able to lead those cadets, I had jump with them. A leader can't ask people to do things that they're not willing to do themselves. Leading by example, right? That's it. You should be able to do what you're asking others to do. Thank you so much for sharing that interesting fact with us. So let's jump into the interview. First of all, well done on everything you have accomplished. I've been following your interviews on different platforms and I'm in awe. Literally, I'm in awe of the work you have done around leadership. I think for me, it would be important to start today by asking you this question. What led you to this path of leadership in crisis in particular? Because I find that to be so unique that you've done a lot of work around leadership in crisis. What led you to this path? 
Well, in 2001, when the World Trade Center was attacked, uh, I could see the smoke from the rooftop of my office at West Point. And it occurred to me right then that we were going to war and that the cadets, once they graduated, would be taking 30 or 40 of other people's children to either Iraq or Afghanistan or elsewhere in the Middle East. And it was not sufficient to me that we tended to study leadership in combat through war stories, basically, through history. And so I wanted to learn more about leading in dangerous places and in crisis so that we would have evidence, we would do research and have evidence about what the best way is to lead in crisis. And that's exactly what we did. Uh, nine people went to Iraq, some for as long as six months. And, you know, we studied leadership in combat. And we did it in such a way that when we came back, we had principles that would apply not just to police or firefighters or the military, but to anyone who's under a significant amount of pressure in their work. And the book came out right before the 2008 banking crisis in the United States. And so one of the groups of people that were most interested in that book uh, were bankers, not necessarily uh, military people, although now the book's used in about eight separate military academies in different countries. And we wanted it to be practical so that it could be applied immediately. Most leadership research is somewhat uninteresting because it doesn't get applied. It's written for other researchers and they communicate with one another about the research. But if you look at the way people are developed, whether it's in a military academy or a university or in business, they don't depend on leadership research very much. So we really wanted a practical, custom-tailored study of how professional crisis leaders operate. This is very key to our conversation and, and the context that we are in, I mean, through the pandemic. And maybe before we go there, um, I mean, you've been a leader of others for decades and you've done research about leadership. What is your definition of leadership? I would love to hear that definition. Yeah, I don't have one. Mm. And I think that most of the time when people are trying to define leadership. It's just an academic exercise. I mean, I could, I could show you a thousand leadership definitions, literally. And so what I try to focus on is not so much defining leadership per se, but studying the characteristics of individuals who are successful leaders. And then in our development programs, trying to increase those characteristics in younger, less experienced leaders. So we don't have to go the whole theoretical way of defining leadership and coming up with leadership theories and so forth. We just have to have some great examples and study them and replicate them. So it's still an evidence-based strategy. It's still scientific, but it's a matter of replicating what we see and we like and understanding more fully when we look at a great leader and we notice something about them, why is that effective for them? And then we reproduce it in, in students and others. So 
do you mind to share your own characteristics or characteristics for you that you have replicated or that works for you so far? You know, this this may be a little bit surprising because I've spent a lot of time leading and, and third, more than 30 years studying leadership. I don't think I'm a very good leader myself. I mean, I'm okay. I, I get the job done and I think my people trust me and respect me. But I would never look to myself as a great example of leadership. I've known far too many extraordinary leaders, just amazing people. So um, who for you is one such example? So I worked for a year for one of our general officers, uh, David Petraeus, who went on to be the director of the CIA. And he was just an amazing leader, boundless energy. He was the most physically fit person in our entire organization, never took a favor from anyone, always related to soldiers, highly trustworthy individual. And he was imperfect. I mean, he he wound up losing his job as a director of the CIA because he had a an affair with his uh, historian. But uh, at the same time, uh, I really respected and admired him for his absolute commitment to being an example for his soldiers. Thanks for sticking around with me as I speak with Thomas Colditz. There are several key things he said about the characteristics of an effective leader, like having the boundless energy. And that leadership is about the energy we carry in a room without even saying a word. He also stressed how essential it is to relate to people and to be trustworthy as a leader. So as we're talking about leadership in crisis, and given that we're still in the middle of a pandemic, I asked Thomas, what are some of the effective leadership styles that can help someone who's leading in a crisis? Well, you know, I don't often talk about leadership styles because that suggests that a person acts the same way across different circumstances, which in any other case would be a failure to adapt. So I talk more about sort of patterns of how people are treated and, and so forth. So when I think of a, of a great crisis leader, I think of a person who, when they go into a room, it calms everyone down. Because in a crisis, people don't need to be motivated. They're already highly aroused, and they may not look like it on the surface, but they're spun up, they're concerned. And so the best crisis leaders are quiet, humble people that are worthy of trust. Their single most important personal characteristic is competence. It's not integrity, it's not courage, it's plain old competence. And when that is paired with concern and, and uh, loyalty towards the people who are following that leader, it builds trust very rapidly. Competent crisis leaders are focused outside themselves on the world around them to try to learn more because one of the most important characteristics of a crisis is uncertainty. And so crisis leaders are constantly scanning to understand more about the threat and more about the problems and more about how people are handling the problems. 
So they don't focus on themselves very much. And it's also the principal way that a professional crisis leader prevents becoming angry or frightened themselves. Because if you focus outside yourself on a task, task orientation is in your prefrontal cortex, in the front lobe of your brain. Fear and anger, on the other hand, come from a deeper brain structure called the amygdala. So if you can focus, if you can focus on a task, you'll feel far less fear or anger. And the best crisis leaders not only manage themselves that way, manage their own fear and anger, but they can, they can also do it in other people by making sure that they have task focus and that they are uh, thinking about something other than the bad things that could possibly happen in the future. So those are just some characteristics of crisis leaders. And, and, you know, the other thing is, it's really important for people to understand, the people who led in crisis and led well, who we studied, lead the same way, with the same patterns, whether there's a crisis or not. Because if you try to change how you lead because of a crisis, it's too late. You know, if you haven't built trust, if you haven't convinced people that you're competent, there's no way for you to backtrack and try to do it in the midst of a crisis. One of the great uh, leaders uh, that I interviewed, a hospital corporation CEO that had 12% of the hospitals in the United States, he had a, a hospital in New Orleans that was evacuated during our famous Hurricane Katrina where there were so many thousands of deaths down there. And I asked him, how he could do that when he didn't have phone connectivity, you know, emails frequently didn't go through. And he said, you know, I couldn't become in 30 minutes what I hadn't been in 30 years. And that's an important lesson about crisis leadership. If you don't develop the levels of trust that are required in the crisis before the crisis, you'll never catch up. That is so insightful, right? You know, and I guess that's that's a shock of what leaders went through, you know, when the pandemic started, because now all of a sudden, you know, there's crisis and now we're trying to check how people are doing. And yet when we're in face to face, you know, some of the behaviors or the patterns were not there. But I think that is so profound that it's really about developing it so as when it happens, you are prepared. But I want to go back to your answer because you identified key things there, calm, competence, and then developing trust before the crisis. But can we just spend some time and, and be practical around the calm one? You know, what are some of the practical things that leaders can do to be calm in crisis? Well, you know, we've already talked about how important task focus is. Another way of a leader becoming calm and making other people calm is to tell people that things are going to be all right, that the leader may not have all the answers right away. There's plenty of uncertainty to go around, but that in a week it'll be over or in a month it'll be over or in a year it'll be over. But the leaders have to focus people on a positive outcome. And it does not require, you know, completely rational support. You know, you, it doesn't have to be fact-based. 
But if it's optimistic and transformationally positive, then people latch on to that. They want to hear that. In the military, there's a habit before a battle for soldiers to tell one another, hey, I'll see you on the objective. And, and what that is, it's soldiers telling one another that we're going to fight this fight and both of us are going to get through it and I'll see you at the end. In dangerous places or crises, people need reassurance from leaders. You know, I think it was Napoleon Bonaparte who said, leaders are dealers in hope. And it's incredibly important for leaders in a crisis to be optimistic and positive, even if internally they have very grave concerns. Stay positive and reassure people. I like that. Start with the end in mind that, you know, we're going to come out of this, right? Just stay positive and be optimistic, you know, around communicating the outcome that, you know, things will change. People feel sometimes that they have to justify their optimism. You don't. It's okay to be optimistic in, in a crisis because people want that. You don't have to justify your optimism. I think that statement just liberated me. I don't have to justify my optimism. I just love that insight from Thomas Colditz. So as we continue in our conversation, I wanted to pivot from talking about leading in crisis to Thomas' latest book, Leadership Reckoning. Can higher education develop the leaders we need? I asked Thomas to share with us how this book came about. Well, I was really fortunate to be hired by one of our top venture capitalists, John Doerr, to build a leadership institute at Rice. And I was shocked at how poorly our universities manage the development of students as leaders. They're terrible at it. And I'm talking about the top 20 schools in the United States being terrible at leader development because we studied 50 of them. And they nonetheless boast on their websites that they're developing the next generation of leaders. They'll say that in their mission statement or their vision, and then they proceed to do next to nothing to develop them. And we have to fix that. And so we wrote this book to do two things. One, to be intellectually honest about the failure of higher education to develop their students as leaders. But then after doing that in the first chapter, we dedicated the rest of the book to explaining how it can be done with professionally trained people, with outcomes that are measured in sophisticated ways so that you know you're not wasting any money. So we tried to be very constructive with the book, and we, we mailed three copies each to the provosts and presidents of the top 200 schools in the United States so that they would have to face up to the fact that their university was doing a pretty poor job. Certainly not as good a job as they would do teaching physics or poetry or any other kind of subject. So every year in the United States, we graduate 2.2 million people with a college education and high school level leadership skills. And this costs American business and global business a tremendous amount of money because they have to then do all the training once these people get into the business. 
And we want the universities to take on some of this responsibility. It is their responsibility. We just want them to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. So, so let's drill down then into the institute and the work, the amazing work that you're doing at Rice University. Do you mind to share with us what are some of the work that you're doing around leadership and around addressing some of the key things you've just mentioned from the book? Sure. So we do the kinds of things that a company might do for a top executive. We offer, for example, a professional ICF leadership coach, an an International Coach Federation coach from the Houston business community, to every student in the university who wants it free of charge for four months. In business, they only do that for high potentials. And what we told the president of Rice University is every single student here is a high potential. And so... It's really an over-the-top commitment to developing students as leaders. And we work with about 40% of the student body. This year, we'll probably coach 800 people. And this is making a difference in the quality of graduates from this university. We want that to spread across the United States. Not necessarily just coaching, but this notion that we should do something meaningful for students to make them better leaders so they can apply their education in business, government, society, or wherever they wind up. So you've already mentioned coaching, and I would like to put a spotlight on it a bit there. What is the role of coaching in developing new and first-time leaders? Because as you've rightfully said, we use coaching for high pause for executives. I mean, what has been the role of coaching for new leaders in your experience? Well, you know, it's, it comes from the experience I got at West Point where I discovered that the way that the cadets learned to lead was not in the leadership classes that I was teaching, that my department was teaching. They learned to lead by doing projects like running a land navigation course or, or running the cadet laundry or some other kind of activity. And while they were running it, they were being supervised and coached by highly experienced Army officers. And that idea left West Point with me when I went to Yale University to their business school. And I started experimenting with professional coaches. And what I discovered was using them got better results for less money than almost any other intervention that I'd ever become familiar with. It just works. And part of the reason it works is that students wind up being coached in interactions that they're very passionate about. So if a student is an engineering student, they're going to get coached in the context of an engineering project team that they're working on. If the student is a cellist in the music school, they're going to get coached in the context of the quartet or the orchestra. If the student is a uh, competitive athlete, they get coached in the context of their athletic team. And when you coach people in something they're passionate about, they learn very quickly. And so in a a nutshell, we use coaching because it's the least expensive, most effective way to develop people as leaders. Perfect. So it's using professional coaches, coaching, 
in context and in areas of passion for the individual, but also it's the most effective way of developing leaders. Amazing stuff there. So there is indeed, I think what you're confirming is that there is indeed a role of coaching for new uh, first-time leaders within organizations. Organizations should really consider employing such services. So we're about to wrap up our show and our conversation, Tom, and I'd like you to make some predictions about developing future leaders. If you were a futurist and were standing, it's five years, 10 years from now, what predictions can you make in terms of how we could develop future leaders um, of tomorrow? Sure. So in five to 10 years, you're going to see universities being the centers of leader development, you're going to see a terrific expansion of universities making sure that students can not only graduate with a great education, but that they have the tools to apply it. What that is going to lead to is the creation of probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 coaching jobs, because there are 5,200 colleges and universities in the United States. So even if a relatively small percentage of them have coaching programs for students, it's going to be an entirely new market for coaching. And I think that pattern will also continue across coaching, where many coaches wind up coaching non-executive clients, whether they're in the social sector or or. Uh, you know, business managers or whatever, and then add a few executives on top of that. That's, to me, the smartest way and the most effective way to make a full and complete living out of coaching. Because if you only bet on executives, there are fewer executives every year and more coaches every year. And so, you know, this focus on coaching at all levels, I think we're going to definitely see in the future. Those are the predictions, um, universities as a center of leader development, this whole notion of democratizing leadership. Everyone can be a leader. And exciting news for coaches, more coaches will be needed in the future. So that is an exciting opportunity for coaches there. I love these predictions. We will watch the space. It has been my joy and honor to speak with you, Tom. Thank you so much for your time. It has just been so insightful, uh, full of wisdom and full of profound statements. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you, Wendy. You're a terrific uh, interviewer, and uh, I was honored to be on your show. I've always been intrigued about leadership in the military. One key lesson Thomas mentioned was that leaders stay calm in crisis. I'm also excited about the future of leadership development for university students. This conversation has been enlightening for me. If you like what you've heard and want to explore more, head on over to coachhub.com to learn how we democratize coaching across all career levels. Thanks everyone for listening. Join me on our next episode as I speak with Oleg Konovalov. Having been named the Da Vinci of Visionary Leadership by many leading authorities of our time, Dr. Oleg Konovalov is helping companies to create and execute their vision, maintain a strong productive corporate culture, and achieve superior business performance. 
We'll discuss what it means to have a vision and how to avoid leadership blindness. You don't want to miss this conversation. From everyone at Coach Hub Studios, have a wonderful day. Happiness.